night I am. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I, I went out and hustled this week. I got us another sponsor. Tonight's episode brought to you by Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper, for when the crime fighting gets t- tough in Gotham and you're thirsty, you reach for a Dr. Pepper. I love it. I just, that, oh, the, the, the 80s. We'll, we'll get there. We will, we will get there. Bloody brilliant. But before we explain where all of that comes from, I've got a, a, some good news. We've got a new Patreon Good news, backer. everyone! Yes! Hey! Yep. Let's thank Kyle Still, our new Jason Todd tier backer. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks, Kyle. So th- that is, just for, for those keeping track, that's eight. We are getting close to the halfway point before we reach that Star Trek bonus podcast stretch goal. Twelve more to go. You know you want to hear us talk about Star Trek. And uh, just to make it clear, usually you don't start getting the bonus podcasts and things until the, the second tier. This one will be available for all backers. So even if you're just a base level $1 Damian Wayne tier backer, you'll be able to hear us rank all the Star Trek movies. So tell your friends, tell your freeloading friends, tell your enemies, tell my enemies. Matt doesn't have enemies because he's a nice guy, but you know, I know you're out there, you motherfuckers. I'm keeping a list. It's fine. Checking it twice. It's much more <laughs> terrifying version of Santa Claus. Ho, ho, ho. But now this week, if what we've heard at the time of this recording is correct, you should be able to stream the blockbuster film, The Batman, right now on HBO Max. We've already talked about two of the three main stories that seem to have inspired the film, The Long Halloween and Zero Year. So this week, we decided to read the third, plus two other stories about Batman's history. That first story is Batman Earth One. Batman Earth One is an original graphic novel, Batman Earth One Volume One, written by Jeff Johns, penciled by Gary Frank, inked by John Siebel, colored by Brad Anderson, and lettered by Rob Lee with a cover date of September of 2012. On a new Earth, an Earth that is just experiencing superheroes for the first time, young Bruce Wayne takes up the mantle of the bat to fight the crime and corruption of Gotham City, including Mayor Oswald Cobblepot and the serial killer known as the Birthday Boy. We'll start out with our usual problematic creator watch disclaimer. Jeff Johns has been in the past year or two embroiled in various controversies, mostly based around bullying and racist behavior on the set of the Justice League film with cyborg actor Ray Fisher. So take that as you will, but there are definite clouds that hang over Jeff Johns's work. And this book is it's a book it is a book it does meet the definition of a book uh we both read it digitally but i i know that there are print copies out there these copies are bound it's printed on what we would consider to be paper you can turn pages read it in a traditional english format the the words are in english 
This is the nicest thing that I have to say uh, about this book, aside from that it, again, does meet the definition of a book. This is a collection of Sean Gordon Murphy ideas competently executed. And that's the only thing, truly the only thing that's going to keep this book off the very bottom because my God, there are so many loathsome parts of this book. This was terrible. This was absolutely terrible. It's better looking than a Sean Gordon Murphy book. Gary Frank. Oh, 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 absolutely. This is some great art wasted on a collection of shit ideas. I mean, I read this ages ago because I, I bought this as a print book because I didn't know how it was going to be. And I buy pretty much anything Batman. And this was before much of the controversy about Jeff Johns. And so I, you know, I picked this up. And how bad could it be, right? How, how terrible could one man write Batman's origin? Yeah. And this is the second time I read it. And I, I sit back and I look at it and I'm like, there are fundamental misunderstandings of so many of the characters in this oh, book. Jesus. And the argument can be made, oh, this is an alternate world. These aren't your fathers, Batman and Alfred and Jim Gordon. Maybe not. Maybe not. But answer me this question. Is there a single likable character in this book? Uh, Barbara. Yeah, good good call. Babs. She is the only likable character in this book. Uh, and she exists basically to be a damsel in distress. Yeah, which is so completely wrong-headed in how Barbara Gordon should be presented. I was going into this book with uh, an open mind. I did not read reviews. Uh, I did not, you know, I didn't jump in the slack and get uh, a sense of what the staff thought about it. I didn't warn but, you. No, no, you didn't. <laughs> Look, I've I've read two volumes of White Knight. I'm about to dive into a third. I can't be hurt anymore by a comic book. But you get a true sense of how gleeful Johns is and basically dropping trout and just shitting over as many things as he can. And in the first couple of pages, we see Batman fail, which, which happens, right? Batman can be human. He can be fallible. He falls off a rooftop, lands in a pile of garbage, and then sees a bodega being held up and does nothing. He just walks away. Fuck you, bud. I don't read Batman comics to one, see Batman be miserable, but two, I don't read Batman to see him just fucking quit, right? In first five pages, he goddamn quits. And that's not even the worst thing. And we'll, I know we'll get to this, but Jim Gordon is a straight up fucking coward in this book. Oh. A fucking crooked ass coward i hated it jesus and let's not forget an alfred who is the extreme version of and i extreme is in you know 90s extreme extreme alfred. yeah this is sas alfred who has no butler training who calls himself bruce's 
Butler for no particular reason. And because he is too much of a coward to tell Bruce that he's his legal guardian. Everybody's a coward in this book. Yes. When Hollywood detective Harvey Bullock question mark is possibly the most morally upright character in this book. There are some problems right there. And and that's, you know, saying something. All right. So three things really quickly. I want to say about Harv here. One, you can't transfer from Hollywood to Gotham. That's not how transfers work. And that's the word Johns uses transfer. That's not how that works. Second, Bullock calls uh, solving the Wayans murder a diamond in the rough. Like he's like, uh, I'm going to crack this diamond in the rough. That's not the way that fucking works. And then finally, the one of the most cynical things Johns does in this book is that he takes this reimagining of Bullock and like he's this this Hollywood pretty boy. He's like literally portrayed with this baby face and he's charismatic. He's on television and he's actually not a bad police detective. But then in the climax of the book, he sees something horrible and then winds up at a bar and he's like, oh, so this guy's gonna gonna let himself go and he's gonna be the, the Harvey you know and love. Yeah, fuck off with that. Just, just, just mean-spirited and just, ugh. This is an ugly book. Not yeah. in the sense of the art being ugly. It is mean-spirited. I've never gotten the impression that Johns particularly liked Batman before this. Uh, A guy who likes Batman does not write this book. Yeah, I mean, John's favorite character in the world is Hal Jordan, a guy who Batman has historically butted heads with. And John's in various issues has reveled at having Hal Jordan deck Batman and lord over Batman, how, you know, what stronger Hal's will is and this and that. And so this kind of felt like John's just one-upping himself on how much he can make Batman look like a putz. And that's the word. Batman in this book is a putz. Yep. I like a story of a young, inexperienced Batman growing into the role. But this Batman goes into everything with no plan. He goes in half cock every time and gets his ass kicked over and over and seemingly learns nothing. Yeah. Except for that one moment where he exhibits unrestrained brutality against a cherished character. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a moment towards the end of the basics of a detective skills, but there is no sign of him developing anything bordering upon a strategic mind. In the end, he is saved from imminent death by Alfred with a shotgun. In the field. It's not like something came to Wayne Manor. No. Alfred went out into the field after a deranged, half-cocked Bruce Wayne and wound up shooting his assailant and not like winging him. He kills the guy who's about to kill Bruce. Flat out murders his ass. And and to be fair, uh, Mayor Cobblepot surprise is a crooked son of a bitch but crooked in like 
stupid ways. And we'll, we'll get into that. But yeah, Alfred presumably just goes through any number of security guards and shows up at exactly the right moment to blow his ass away. It's just nuts. And again, what irritates me probably the most, you can have a complete reimagining of these characters in a completely different world. But this isn't a complete reimagining. This feels just left of center which makes how drastic some of the changes are feel really wrong. You can have this bodyguard, hard-ass Alfred, but not in a world that seems so close to what we're used to. You have to either work within the basic tropes that our understanding exists in or take a wild swing. This isn't a wild swing of a world. This is, I don't want to go about world building a really different Gotham. So I'm going to create just a slightly different Gotham with these completely different takes in the characters. It's a similar problem to what we get in White Knight. Absolutely. And, and I want to go back to the idea that this has to be just so dark. And that's one of the reasons we, we dislike it. You can have a dark take on Batman. I think we just read a real good one for the print column with uh, with the imposter that's a world that is similarly depressing we have an alfred that has just left the scene we have gordon who has left you know gcpd in disgrace but we have a batman there who is still fighting and who is as you put it not a putz that book worked like this like well this is pretty depressing but it's you know it, it, it succeeds as a comic book it feels at home in the mythos this as you said just does so many just terrible things and it just doesn't get anything from any of it like there's no payoff to any of this uh, i will say the one moment where i felt good reading this is the the end of gordon's arc when he decides to not be a coward anymore and so he just drags this low-level street captain into the precinct and like throws him on the floor is like this guy's under arrest and he says, I'm not going to be a coward anymore. Well, what about all the times when you were? And congratulations, you arrested one low-level thug. Emotionally, it felt good. But logically, it's just, it ain't much. And what good is that going to do? Because he's not in any position of authority. Logically, he'd just get shit canned. Oh, the yeah. commissioner, who has got to be incredibly corrupt, and the captain below him, because he's Lieutenant Gordon, even maybe not even full lieutenant, maybe just Detective Gordon, would just get fired. Because yes, the Penguin is no longer in power because he's dead because Alfred killed him. Wah, wah. Yeah. There's still a whole system of corruption here. And Gordon, Gordon gets away with all the shit he does in year one because he's public about it. Gordon's a hero cop. This isn't a hero cop move. This is a, hey, I just put a target on my back move. And Johns can't even let us have this one moment because as soon as Gordon does that, everybody else in the precinct literally looks at each other and says, who the fuck was that? Like Gordon can't even be a hero in the department. John's sense of humor is not good. That joke just, by that point, I was so done with this book. 
But early on, when we first see Mayor Cobblepot and Bruce comes out of hiding and goes to this party, Penguin's like, there are plenty of girls inside or boys, if that's your thing. Like, oh. is, is that supposed to be funny? Because it's not. Nothing like a gay panic joke in a book that came out in 2012. The Penguin is, they initially draw him considerably more handsome and less dumpy and weird looking than the Penguin usually is. He's a lot slicker and a lot, he, he's not quite as dumpy. His nose isn't quite as long. But then we get this scene where you see him eating and he's tearing at things with his hands and he's covered in grease. And it's like, you're, you're trying to have your cake and eat it too with this in-between of the grotesque penguin and the suave penguin. So you're not giving us either. And this is a point you've made before for the print column. And you, you're absolutely right. It just, these things are not compatible. But let's lay out the central problem with Mayor Cobblepot, right? Mayor of a very large city, presumably one with a criminal empire. And yet when he wants shit done, he has to hire a crazy hitman and pay him off with children because that was an idea that Johns had and no one told him no. Because he was C CCO, Chief Creative Officer of DC at this point, probably. I'm sure there is an editor on this book, but on the DC wiki, it didn't list an editor. Uh, and I mean, I meant to get it out of the book and I didn't. But what, what good is an editor going to tell their boss's boss? Duh. Hey, hey, Drop, maybe, maybe not do that. Huh? Maybe. You know, you can create all manner of peril in a comic book. Most things I feel are fair game. You can use a child in a story and it does heighten the stakes, but here it's cheap. It's a real cheap endangering of a child in this book. The birthday boy, as this killer is called, is a child predator. And unless you're going to do something with that and make that a central part of the story... Make that something that you're going to have to reckon with. It's the cheapest, most exploitative crime you can play with. And this just is uncomfortable. The Mad Hatter can sometimes head towards that pervy pederast thing, but it's usually best when that isn't done or when it's done in a very removed way. This guy is very much brutalizing children. There isn't an overt sexual component to it, at least. At least it's just that he's brutally murdering children. But that's the best thing I can say about that part of this book. And it just doesn't make any goddamn sense. What does God would need with a starship? What does the mayor of Gotham need with a child predator? Right? He, he should have goons upon goons to take care of his other goons. Like, it just doesn't, doesn't make any sense. He's got, he's got ex-cops. He's got any number of, you know, street toughs. Like, it just, it's just 
dumb and offensive and bad. It's there because John's had this idea for the birthday boy and he wanted to use it. That's yeah. that's it. It's like, oh, wouldn't that be, you know, shocking and something I can pull off in this original graphic novel that's outside of whatever DC's current answer to the comics code internally is. I can do whatever I want, so I'm going to create this character. Maybe the comics code was right, Matt. <laughs> you read books like this and it, it sometimes feels like it. This is just the connection to the, uh, the Batman, by the way. This is the story where Martha is in Arkham and where Thomas is running for mayor. That's the thing that the Batman drew. And the appearance of Alfred here is very close to Andy Serkis's physical look in the Batman. But Andy Serkis's take on the character is considerably less terrible than this Alfred. Yeah, uh, you know, in the film, Alfred is there for riddle support. You know, he tries to, I think, help where he can, but he's definitely not out in the field with a shotgun. And in the end, Alfred comes around and there is a tender moment between him and Bruce, but it's completely unearned. Completely unearned. Yeah, and again, the same thing with, you know, as with the Gordon moment, John doesn't undercut that, but it's just, you go through so much in this book and it's all just so bad. And you get to that one thing, you know, like, oh, that was nice, but it does not make up for everything else. And we get hints of Arkham Asylum or the Arkham Mansion that will probably become the asylum as the volumes continue. You meet Harvey Dent and his twin sister who the first line in the first page that they're introduced in has a clear two-face pun to it. You get a first appearance of the Riddler on the last page. There's a whole bunch in here that's set up for future volumes versus trying to make this completely stand on its own. I really, really, really don't want to know where this take on Two-Face ends up. I'll be completely honest. I've read volume two. I remember nothing about it. And I have not read volume three. We'll have to eventually, but I'm not Oof. looking forward to either of them. Uh, it's at, just at Oof. least in the end, I was really irritated that it looked like we were getting another. We know who's responsible for the Wayne's murder thing. And in the end that gets subverted. And I, I was kind of pleased to see that the Wayne money comes from medical technology, not from weapons, which you'd think would have been a thing that Jeff Johns would have absolutely gone for with this former soldier, Thomas Wayne. But then I realized, oh, right. Any company that makes medical advances or technology now are basically screwing over the little guy. So that makes Thomas Wayne a real asshole. One more thing that sucks in this book that we did not get to just before the Wayans are murdered. They're leaving a theater. Bruce runs into a guy, the eventual killer of the Wayans guy says, Hey kid, watch where you're going. And this is young master Wayne's response. And I'll, I'll read this from the book. I don't have to do anything. You say my parents are the richest people in Gotham city. Not even eight-year-old Bruce Wayne is likable in this book. 
listen, I hate the mega wealthy as much as the next middle class person out there struggling to stay in the middle class. But this is fantasy. I'd like to have Thomas, Martha, and Bruce Wayne be decent. Yeah. They aren't Tony Stark, who is a gin-swilling playboy asshole before he has his come-to-God moment becoming Iron Man. The Waynes are supposed to be decent people. And making Bruce a little shit here, who only becomes a decent person because his parents are killed, that's a very Jeff Johns thing. Jeff Johns does not believe in heroism for heroism's sake. He's the guy who said, well, Barry Allen's origin before me was, Barry Allen was just a really good guy who when he got these superpowers, decided to use them for good and be a hero. No. I have to have his mother murdered and his father sent to jail unjustly for that murder to give Barry motivation to be a hero. This is someone who doesn't believe in heroism for heroism's sake, unless you're Superman. And even then he would absolutely play up the, you know, stranger in a strange land lost my planet vibe versus the raised by the Kents to be a decent person vibe. What an asshole. I mean, we've barely, and we haven't even barely talked about Gordon and Gordon's cowardice that Gordon's wife died in a car accident that might not have been a car accident, that she might have been killed because Jim was sticking his nose in the wrong place, but he's not sure. But because of this, to protect, quote unquote, Barbara, he just goes along to get along and lets all the corruption just happen around him. Like, he doesn't even have the moral fortitude to be corrupt. And again, we exist in a world where we absolutely realize that there is major problems with policing in this country. I am not making any excuses for policing in America. But Gordon has always been the last honest man. And making him a coward just to, again sort of have this come to Jesus moment when he meets Batman. So the minute Batman is gone, Gordon's just gonna go back to keeping his head in the sand. That's not a character that's interesting. That's a character who's just another piece of shit. Uh, But Matt, everybody's a piece of shit in this book. And yeah, I think that's the last thing to say about this book because it's the truism of this book. No one is good, except maybe Lucius Fox. We get very little Lucius, and I think that does the best for Lucius because we don't get to see him kick a puppy or something. Uh, he punched a co-worker. Yeah, but, but a, a corrupt co-worker. So, or a, yeah, so let's just let this one lie at this point because otherwise Ugh. we could, again, we could just rant all night. That means it's time to put Batman Earth One Volume One on the big board. Right now, we've got 93 stories on our big list. Story number one is Year One from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Number 15 is Beautiful People from Detective Comics Volume One, number 821. Number 30 is Bloodstorm the Vampire Batman sequel. 
Number 45 is Going Sane from Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 65 to 68. Number 60 is Batman and Son from Batman, Volume 1, numbers 655 to 658. 75 is Demons from Batman Adventures, Volume 1, Annual Number 2. And bringing up the rear is Batman White Knight. Like a dog turd in the sun. Matt, tell the good people where they can find this list of all of these books we put together. This list is on comicsxf.com, the home of our print bat chat column, other stuff Will and I write, and the bat chat podcast. And we write a lot of stuff over at ComicsXF, where I am currently reviewing uh, the second season of Picard, which is better than the first, but we're still, we're still, jury's still out on that one. And uh, I got an indie book column going. Matt takes care of a whole lot of our DC coverage. We're we're doing good things over there. I'm also the part of the regular team covering Image Comics Saga, which is exciting to talk about month in and month out. And that is also the home of WMQ&A, my other podcast with previous guests in front of the show and Patreon backer Dan Grote. Quote, unquote, friend. (laughs) It's a good place to be. Okay, so let's start from the bottom and work our way up. The only thing, as I said all the way back in our intro, the only thing that saves this book is one, the art, and two, its overall competence in telling a story. It's a shit story. It's a bad story. It's a story that's loathsome, but it's at least told in a competent way. White Knight is a disastrous mess. Same thing goes with Superman and Batman versus vampires and werewolves. I mean, they are just, it's a, it's a big old bucket of slop. There's no form to it. It's just bad from top to bottom. This is bad in its ideas, bad in its motivations, but it's at least executed. And I don't think we, at the very bottom of this list, we can't even say that these comics are competently executed. So I am, so yeah, it's better than those bottom two. It's better than above that. Stop me if you've heard this one, the Superman Batman annual. Because again, there's execution issues on top of the problematic nature of that story. Above that is widening gyre. I'm, you know, I'll say this. I think if push came to shove and I was handed the hardcover of widening gyre and the hardcover of Batman Earth One, I'd probably read widening gyre again first. Uh, yeah, because it doesn't get awful until that last issue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's problems throughout, but now I'm the art in this is so much better than Widening Gyre. I mean, Gary Frank. I wish there was more Gary Frank Batman content because he's a great artist, and I can't think of much Gary Frank Batman content. And that's a a damn shame. So much wasted time on books that are so bad. So there is no way this goes above, let's say, 86, the last Batman story. For all its problems, it's at least wacky fun. I, I wouldn't put it above 550, which was that was that 
just bad Clayface book, right? Right. Right. And that was just that was just boring and the art wasn't as sharp, but you didn't have anything loathsome in there. Right. Widening Gyre is a mess and it has that fridging. Our problems with this, with the exception of the birthday boy, it's not terribly offensive in what it has to say. I mean, John's might be an offensive person, but that's not hugely coming through in this book. The Blue, the Gray, and the Bat, the Dark Knights, that's just always going to be, be a problem. I, I keep I keep coming back to the moment where I absolutely turned against this book. The the beginning was rough, but the moment where Bruce sweeps Alfred's leg. Yeah. And and we haven't totally spelled this out, but you know, Alfred is a combat veteran who lost his leg. So Bruce sweeps out the artificial leg. And for Alfred, it's a moment of by Jove, he's finally ready to do that must which must be done. But for me, I read it as a moment of just incalculable cruelty. Blue the Gray and the Bat is absolutely offensive. It's got a Batman who relishes guns. It's a bunch of nonsense, it's but boring. It's boring, but that one moment just crystallizes for me everything bad about this book. Uh, I'm not going to fight you no. if you want to go 89 at this, but I would go 90. Yeah, I think it beats Widening Gyre by a hair. But listen, the, the Dark Knights thing is bad. But it's somehow, I think, intended to be empowering. And it's it's not. It's not at all. But it's just poorly conceived in a dumb way this is is just not nice not good so yeah 90 you know I'm, I'm curious to see if we make any enemies for our comments on white knight you know those those murph the murphy devotees i'm not worried about anybody being angry at us for disliking earth one because i don't think there are any real devotees to this particular vision of the bat Oh, Joff John's like, uh, who's going to come in here and cape for him? <laughs> Our next story, which I completely forgot something about, and we might have to revisit this at some point or another because there, there's something fun that we'll, we'll have to talk about at a future episode and tag on at the end for you folks because we got to do it. And I just have had a, a hectic week. But I'll get to that when we talk about it later. Um, okay okay is the untold legend of the batman this was the untold legends of the batman miniseries uh, three issue miniseries written by len ween with pencils in issue one by john byrne and in issues two and three by jim aparo inks by jim aparo colors by glunis oliver letters by john costanza in issue one and aparo in issues two to three and edited by paul levitz the cover dates are July to September of 1980. A mysterious package arrives for Batman and sends the Dark Knight on a frantic hunt for who may have discovered his identity and infiltrated his inner sanctum, all while reliving his past. Uh, we've done problematic creator watches on John Byrne before. He remains problematic. This is the first book I think we've covered with Jim Aparo art. That sounds right? Question mark? I mean, Aparo is one of the defining Batman artists. 
of the 70s, 80s into the 90s. He has drawn more Batman than a ton of artists. He did long runs on Brave and the Bold, on Batman, on Detective. He is sort of the the Bronze Age standard for Batman. There are flashier artists, Neil Adams, Marshall Rogers, but when it comes to a dependable Batman artist, Jim Aparo is the one. And as an artist, I have a very fond feeling for, for all the Batman that I've seen him draw over the years. This is the first Batman miniseries ever. This came out really? in 1980. Yeah. Came out in 1980, which is just around the time when DC started doing miniseries. And it is basically a synthesis of all of the different aspects of Batman's origin, little bits and pieces that had been revealed before that and put into one very streamlined version of that tale. There is very little in this that was conceived by Ween for this book. Everything, with one little exception, is from silver, bronze, even late golden age stories that he has taken and made into one linear narrative from A to B to C. Let me ask you this, and and feel free to correct me. The feeling I got from this, like the idea here was, we're going to do Batman grand design. Do you think that's fair? I think that's a pretty fair description for something that, I mean, we're not in that level of high concept because this was 1980 and you couldn't do the tiny panels and that kind of thing. But yeah, this was, let's take all those stories and let's tell them in a way that creates one narrative that puts those stories in order. It was an interesting experiment. I'll say that. Yeah. And it's very interesting to see reading this now, how different Batman's origin is post-crisis. What aspects were removed? What aspects were changed? And honestly, while a lot of these things are kind of fun, I feel like the post-crisis origin is better. Yeah, it's kind of neat that, you know, if you want to get technical about it, Bruce was the first Robin, but that's, it's stuff like that that is ultimately fairly silly. And that just doesn't work in a modern age. I I remember reading uh, Zdarsky's Superman, or not Superman, Spider-Man life story. There was so much silliness in that where I thought, okay, once you're talking clones in trying to do this modern project, I think you've kind of lost the thread. Uh, But uh, I I admire anybody trying to stitch together decades upon decades of continuity. Like, it could not have been easy. No. And for any and all the shit that we rightly give Frank Miller for a lot of things, the bits that he established with Alfred being the person who raised Bruce, that makes things so much simpler. Getting rid of Uncle Philip Wayne and Joe Chill's mom, his housekeeper, who was the woman who comforted Bruce and giving that role partially to Alfred and partially to Leslie Tompkins. 
who we'll get to in our third story tonight, is smoother. Good it, old serial killing Uncle Philip. Yeah. Uncle Uncle Philip, who we get as a cane in modern continuity. This is fun. I mean, some of the and we also get to see what aspects carry through the the pledge at the grave of the Wayne, Joe Chill. It was nice to see Harvey Harris, who we'd seen before in uh, the Detective Comics annual, which, you know, postdates this and was taking something from that golden age. Bruce as the first Robin story. This also has the the Lou Moxon stuff, which I've never particularly liked because, again, it puts a face on the because in the golden age, it was established that Joe Chill was actually a hitman hired by a mobster named Lou Moxon, which we talked about last week in To Kill a Legend. But again, I prefer that it's random street crime, that Joe Chill is just a mugger because it makes Bruce's quest more fixed. And two, in the the, the pre-crisis origin, we don't get Bruce traveling the world. We get Bruce at college, which is cute, for lack of a better word. And I I was really struck because, look, I, I enjoyed two things in law school. I enjoyed criminal law and I enjoyed First Amendment. And I teach First Amendment now. But whenever I get the chance to talk about one particular thing in criminal law, I'm going to do it. And so I'm going to drive this show into the ditch. Uh, talk, talking about a criminal law concept called felony murder. Felony murder is, is sort of a misnomer because, yes, all murders are felony. But felony murder is a special class of murder in which you, as a criminal defendant, can be charged with murder even if you had no intent to kill. And this is, is because you were engaged in a dangerous felony at the time of the killing. And so Bruce gets into this hypothetical, like his, his professor, like I, it says a law class and a professor, but you know, it's, it's some undergraduate criminal law, unless Bruce went to law school, which if, you know, if so, good on him. But anyway, so uh, uh, the law professor, two 19-year-old boys steal a car for a joyride. Along the way, one of them changes his mind and asks to be let out of the car. Before his friend who's driving can comply, the car accidentally strikes an old woman crossing the street and kills her. Should the boy who changed his mind still be charged with felony manslaughter, Mr. Wayne? And Bruce argues, no, uh, he was complicit in the car theft, but he didn't have anything to do with the death. And I would argue to the law professor here, the proper charge is not felony manslaughter, but indeed felony murder because stealing a car inherently a violent felony if you're driving away recklessly so anyway i enjoyed that the more you know my, my favorite application of felony murder is where uh you and your bud right are robbing a bank the security guard at the bank shoots your bud guess who's on the hook for felony murder you are really Really? That's fascinating. Yep. The security guard had a lawful killing, but you were engaged in the dangerous felony. So if that prosecutor wants you for felony murder, you're going up for felony murder. Huh. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's an old uh, uh, English common law concept, you know, just designed to, 
you know, basically dissuade people from engaging in violent felonies, but no one knows the rules, so it doesn't serve any purpose, and yet it still exists. Well, now all our listeners do, so you know, don't commit a violent crime where there's the remote possibility that someone could die, even indirectly, because you could be on the hook for felony murder. There you go. Back to, to the comic. It's interesting for me to see, even in 1980, so we're six years five six years before miller bruce is still way more of a hard ass than your average square-jawed superhero i mean that comes from the 70s that comes from the dark night of o'neill and adams but here there's a snitch and he grabs him and he is just slapping this guy in the face brutally and he's breaking arms and Robin's having to get in the way of him from doing serious bodily harm to these crooks. That is not a creation of Frank Miller and that modern Batman. That's something that had been there for quite some time before that. Miller makes subtext text, but this is still before that grim night of that era. I think, you know, it's part of comics growing up. I think Miller probably escalated something that was bound to happen eventually. Uh, You know, we weren't going to be telling, you know, silly stories forever, especially once uh, comics became this special segregated marketplace where you couldn't get, you know, a comic book in front of the hands of a kid, if even if you wanted to. So I, I figure it was bound to happen. But yeah, it's interesting to see this absolutely before Dark Knight Returns and you have Batman who is violent. You have Batman who has got this edge to him. But still here, there is that silliness. I mean, the the overall resolution of the story is Batman stole the thing himself? Question mark? The ending of this is a little bit weird. You've got this Batman had been caught in an explosion and it had fragmented his mind. And so Bruce Wayne has been rebelling against Batman this whole time and has been subconsciously causing all of this havoc. It is a very silver bronze age conceit that comes through at the end. It's it's also fun that Dick repeatedly calls Bruce chum in this story. And Bruce is still addressing Gordon as sir, which nowadays, you know, it's it's Jim. They're much more peers than the Gordon who looks considerably older. I mean, that's another thing that comes from year one. I mean, at this point, what do you think? They say Bruce has been it's been 25 years since the Waynes were murdered. So that makes Bruce 33. Gordon's pushing 60. Oh, let's see. I was trying to get a good look at him. Which issue is he in? He's in three, but he was a lieutenant when the Waynes were killed 25 years ago. So he's got, I mean, he's at least in his 50s. He's yeah, he he's fully gray. He is commissioner, at least, but he's still pointing. The first time they meet... He appears to be a commissioner. Yeah, which is a something that, again, was changed for the modern 
era. But I feel like year one changed it and made the age gap between Bruce and Jim closer to a decade than 30, 20 to 30 years, which it seems to be here. Yeah. And so calling him sir is not that outside the realm of possibility. But now, nowadays, they're much more peers. And we saw that in the film, by the way. Yes. So I, I mean, again, and that's not a, a good change or a bad change. That's just something that has changed over the years. Again, another thing that has changed, we see how Bruce met Lucius Fox here. And it's very clear that before Batman begins, Lucius was the finance guy. Lucius was not a scientist until Batman Begins made him the Wayne Tech science guy. And that's where the comics has taken the character since then. Before that, Lucius was always CFO, which I, again, have always found to be a change I didn't like just because it makes Lucius part of Batman's world, not just part of Bruce's world, which removed another connection Bruce had to his humanity. This, I believe, is our second, is it second? Yes, I'll say again second. Our second Lynn Wayne story, is that correct? Lost episode being the first. Yes. Is there anything else? No, I do not believe so. I think this is just the two. So far, Uh, he's he's written many Batman stories over the years. I believe he created Lucius. I feel like this is the opposite of uh, Problematic Creator Watch. This is like beloved creator memorial spot seems like everyone loved lynn wayne him he's another one that goes with archie goodwin who we've talked about before as the most beloved editor in comics archie goodwin and lynn Wayne both and denny o'neill those guys yeah go in that opposite end of the spectrum why is it that the 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 problematic creators stick around forever and these beloved creators pass too young assholes never die I had a particularly curmudgeonly great aunt. She was great to me and my brothers, but had various problems with my, my father. And my father swore that quote, unquote, she lived on nothing but scotch and spite for the last decade of her life. (laughs) Uh. And and that's, that, that is a lot of people. Scotch and spite. Donald Trump is going to outlive you and me both, bud. One thing I will also say that's interesting about this story, after the past couple of weeks and some of the things we've read, with Death in the Maidens and whatever happened to the Caped Crusader, so much of those stories focused on Bruce and Martha. This story is very much about the bond between Bruce and Thomas. There's a lot that the original Batman costume as this features that story of Thomas in the Batman, a Batman type costume interfering with Lou Moxon. And then the destruction of the costume is the thing that starts the adventure off in the end. When Bruce goes back to Wayne Manor, because he's living in the penthouse at that point in Gotham proper, he has these memories of his time there with his father. This is very much about that bond between father and son. It it probably would have been interesting to play a little more up 
with that between Bruce and Dick as a parallel, but there's only so much time you have in three issues. I will say one thing that was maybe a nice thing in Earth One, that original costume is referenced in there. Yeah, I, I, I suppose it's better than pretty much anything else in that book. Our fun Gotham locale named after a creator watch. The alley behind the Wayne building that has the penthouse on it that the Batmobile comes out of is Finger Alley after co-creator of Batman, Bill Finger. I respect him so much. I'm not even going to make a joke about it. It's hard sometimes, but a man who got so royally fucked over by Bob Kane, you know. There was a there was a typewriter gag in something I think we read last week. It's like finger typewriter something. something yeah, I, I think maybe it was that in that that where were you the night Batman was killed with the the gold encrusted typewriter? It was for a billboard, I think. That sounds like something that would have been actually that might have been more in uh, whatever happened. One of those flashes, the the, the, the those stories. It's always nice to see people acknowledge Bill Finger. Until DC finally got off its ass and did it. Finally. Also, as something to call out before we get to the next story, here Bruce is this very studious student, which is a strong counterpoint to what we'll see in the next story. But aside from that, I also think it was interesting that we only got two villain origins in here joker and two-face i mean they're they're two of the big two but i'm surprised we didn't get some more time with catwoman or Raish or penguin or riddler or scarecrow or any of the other marquee bat villains but i guess we're only going to do two joker and two-face are both big name and their origins are fairly easy to boil down to like a page kind of hard to do that for Rachel ghoul yeah Where's where's the penguin's origin ever gone? Well, we will eventually get to there's a secret origins special written by Neil Gaiman that has a penguin, Riddler, and Two-Face story in it. And there are other times where the penguin's origin is sort of talked about. But his origin isn't terribly interesting. At least not until years later when they add that wrinkle that he was one of the founding families of Gotham. And that, that I think, adds some pathos to that character. Because, again, it makes him the counterpoint to Bruce Wayne. Families are always on the rise and fall. Yep. Or whatever that line is from The Departed. Yeah. Two last things. One, the one thing that is created for this miniseries is Jack Edison, stuntman who builds the Batmobiles, who is a great idea and is a character I'd like to see used again, because I like it. There's this guy who just designs Batmobiles. There's actually an episode of Batman the Animated Series called The Mechanic that does that. I would not have been able to guess that. If you had told me, well, there's one thing in here that was a creation for this miniseries, pick it out, I would not have said... Guy who builds the Batmobiles. I I recognize pretty much everything else. And I got to that and I was like, okay, what old Golden Age story is this guy from? I was like, oh, first appearance on Leslie the Batman number three. Huh. Okay. Ludwig just wanted to add a little something of his own in there. Fair. 
the other thing, and this is what I referenced before, because I had really intended to do this, but time got away from me. I first encountered this miniseries, as you may remember me and Corey McCreary talking about, in these late 80s, early 90s, comic with cassette combos that did, you know, the comic as a radio play on the cassette, and you could read along with it. And I have found that I still have those comics with cassettes. And I wanted to get, you know, a little excerpt of the dialogue to play so we could hear it. And the 80s ass rock anthem that we get for the the Batman intro. And I think possibly between now and when we post this episode, I'll get some of that onto an audio file. We'll play it and we'll add that as like a little bonus podcast, you know, a little 10 minute addendum that y'all can listen to separately because it's wild. Amazing. But I also have to find a cassette player to do that, which (laughs) I'm pretty sure we have one somewhere around here, but we'll see. But I think we, we, we've kind of gotten to the end of this one, so... That means it's time to put Untold Legend of the Batman on the big board. Well, well above year Earth One. Well above Earth One. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, remind me, what's Legends of the Dark Knight 65 through 68 at 45? That's going sane. Joker thinks he's killed Batman and becomes Joseph Kerr. I did not have that one down in my notes. I feel 30s, 40s. Yeah. Let's, okay, let's start here. Post-Crisis Origin of Jason Todd at 42. Another sort of tale of Batman's past. A more focused one, granted. Or year three, right above that. Yeah, I think it's it's right around there, right? I don't think it's better than Doomsday Book. I mean, it seems like it fits right in with Fear for Sale as the first Batman miniseries with Ween. I mean, it feels pretty consequential and it does a good job at some hard work. Yeah. Are we thinking 41, right below Fear for Sale, right above year three? I can work with that. Yeah, I think I think that's a good spot for this book. And that leads us into our final story of the night, my beginning and my probable end. This is from Detective Comics, Volume 1, number 574. Uh, the writer is Mike W. Barr, pencils by Alan Davis, inks by Paul Neary, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by Richard Starkings, edited by Denny O'Neill. Cover date of May of 1987. Waiting to see if a critically injured Jason Todd recovers from his wounds, Batman and Leslie Tompkins talk about Bruce's history and why he is Batman. Speaking of Fear for Sale and Doomsday Book, we're back into that Bar Davis run on Detective, a run that I unabashedly adore. How much Leslie Tompkins have you read or experienced? I think this question came up the last time we talked Leslie Tompkins, and I think my answer is the same. Uh, it is uh, all I got is the animated series uh, voiced by the very good shit. Diane Muldoor. Yes, Dr. Pulowski. 
Yeah. I mean, this is when Leslie starts becoming that character. Before this, Leslie was just nice little old lady who found Bruce. This is where she becomes Dr. Tompkins and the voice of nonviolence in Bruce's world, which is a great voice to have and becomes this central figure in Bruce's life. And I've said it, I said it the last time and I'll say it here again. I love Leslie Tompkins as a character. I think she's great. This brassy lady who's the only person other than Alfred who would, I'm going to put you across my knee if I need to, young man. You are not too big to spank, Bruce. This does pick up from the end of the previous issue where Jason Todd was shot by the Mad Hatter, but they're both pretty much standalone stories. This could have been any incident that brought Jason to that point to make this story happen. And just, I mean, it's intense to see Bruce dealing with Jason's wounds and the possibility of losing him only about two years before a death in the family. This is three issues after Fear for Sale, where Bruce's greatest fear was Jason's death. We should have seen it coming, Matt. Yep, they, they, they were laying it all out. This does a slightly different version of the events that we saw in Untold Legend of the Batman. It covers a lot of the same ground but does it in a slightly different way. We're at the point where Alfred was there from the beginning, but now Leslie is much more central to Bruce's childhood. This is the issue that establishes that. And we see Bruce as this driven child, and we see Bruce at college already putting on the Bruce Wayne persona. He isn't the, you know, young, intelligent student. He's has to act the fop and act the entitled rich asshole. Which seemed like a really complicated plot. But you know what? You do you, Bruce. Yeah. This also has one brief bit that sets up the next arc, which is Batman Year Two where we see Bruce retrieve Joe Chill's gun, which he tossed aside at the site of the Wayne's murder. We'll get to year two soon enough. Uh-oh, that doesn't sound good. Year two is a crazy fucking story. It has some stuff that is really weird and is not a interpretation of Batman that works anywhere outside of this weird pocket universe. There's a lot of Batman using a gun, but it's organic to the story it's being told and kind of becomes about why Batman decides never to use a gun again by the end. I mean, it's literally, without spoilers, it's Batman running around using the gun that killed his parents. It's a wild fucking story. Now, in uh, in The Batman, we have a good feeling, right, that, that Bruce takes the gun and melts it down into the suit, right? But it's never established. Yeah, it's not. That that was that was in Detective either 1000 or 1027. Probably the best. And it was Kevin Smith. Yeah, it was the best Kevin best Batman story Kevin Smith has ever written. 
I really like this story. I think while Untold Legend of the Batman, you know, A, it had more time to do it, but it told a more sweeping story. The emotion in this story is very raw and very real. Both Bruce's concern for Jason and Leslie's concern for Bruce. And that that will be the sort of the central arc of Leslie Tompkins' character. She's the one who's always worried about Bruce and feels bad that she failed him in some way by letting him become Batman. And speaking out against the violent crusade that he makes. And so much of that is set here. I mean, she was always, when she's first introduced in a story called There Is No Hope in Crime Alley, a line that is dropped at the beginning of this story. She is the one who tells Bruce to not savagely beat down a mugger. But here is where it really establishes just how much Leslie is the voice of nonviolence. You make what you do sound noble, heroic. You do this for yourself. You're still that little boy I took home 25 years ago taking out his revenge on anyone unfortunate enough to be on the wrong side of the social. Yeah, that's Leslie Tompkins. Leslie runs a clinic for people who can't afford to go to hospitals, funded by the Wayne Foundation, because she is a crusader. And Bruce makes the point later in the story that there isn't that much of a difference between him and Leslie. They're both people who've dedicated their lives to their work and nothing more. I would argue to Bruce that Leslie has a much better work-life balance. Oh, yeah. I mean, Leslie does. And I think, I think what is it, Batman? It says, like, the work has become the life. Yeah. It's established later on that she and Alfred have a kind of on-again, off-again thing. But that they've dedicated it's a good so much, ship. Yeah. And that they've dedicated but they've dedicated so much of their lives both to their work and to Bruce that they can never really make it work. But it makes a lot of sense, especially if the two of them had been parenting him for all of those years. They would be an obvious pair of people who would have grown very close. It's in an issue of Gotham Knights that again we'll get to someday. One day. I do like that we are still early enough in the post year one era that the pearls, while Martha is wearing the pearls, we don't see them break and spill everywhere. It's also a point that with Leslie's outlook, when Bruce says Jason will make it, he's a fighter. She balks at that. That's all you can call him, a fighter. For Leslie, there's more to life than this. And he just, she can't, understand it in the end she embraces him and she acknowledges that what he does is for want of any better term a necessary evil because someone has to do it and bruce she's irritated irritated she's angered by the robins by bringing more people into this life but bruce feels like this is granting them a catharsis letting them get that anger out that he couldn't when he was younger to allow them to grow beyond it. Granted, that hasn't happened, but I think that's more has to do with the nature of superhero comics than anything Bruce has done. If you really- It's always going to be a Batman. Yeah. 
if you could let these characters grow up, yeah, Dick or Jason or Tim more than even either of them could probably become something more than a superhero or other than a superhero. But we live in a superhero world that needs to keep telling stories. So these characters can't grow beyond being superheroes. And again, we've said this with the Barr and Davis books before, but Alan Davis is, he's another master. His art here is just great. His Leslie looks like an older woman. She's skinny in that way, wiry, but still has this gravitas to her. And the colors are great. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The the two-page scene of Bruce making his vow and retrieving the gun for as problematic as that sounds like it's eventually going to be, it is just a beautiful-looking scene. And it's silent, which I love, because it doesn't need to be more than that. Barr lets Davis just tell those two pages without any unnecessary words. What would you have there? The same vow that by that point we had seen in a dozen comics over the years. Bruce is alone. He doesn't need to say anything out loud. So it just, Davis tells the story. And uh, we're definitely not doing thought bubbles here. No. And I love the bits of Bruce in college. The, there's one panel of him when he's talking about showing off his money and he just said, you know, adjusting his cufflinks while walking through campus in, you know, a suit while everyone else is dressed down. It's like, yeah, you look at this guy and you kind of just want to slap him. Davis pulls that off. Or the moment where Bruce almost says something in class, reaches that one panel, shows him raising his hand and the next has him, you know, covering a yawn. It's, it's great body language. It's phenomenal body language. And Davis is a master of that. Davis is a master of character beats in comic book storytelling i'm not sure how much more there is to say i mean this is a one issue they still at this juncture had not established leslie as a particular co-worker or friend of thomas wayne i'm fairly sure that that starts in batman the animated series and kind of spins into the comics because i don't remember that being a big deal before batman the animated series But here you get a hint because she asks Bruce what his father would think of what he's doing. So there is some kind of hint that they might have had some sort of previous knowledge of each other. And they're both doctors, so it kind of makes sense. Well, Gotham only had two doctors. So, you know, what are you going to do? I will say the one thing that struck me as odd, the final page, as Batman sees that Jason is going to live, he says... I won't force you to do this anymore. And that implies that until this point, he had been forcing Jason to be Robin, which is not a thing I think you want to be doing. No, I think I think that might have just been a poor choice of words or Bruce's yeah. own guilt. I read that as Bruce feeling guilty about this. Yeah, uh, let's go with that. And Jason being like, no, I never, you never forced me to do anything. And again... You just got to remember, we're not that far off a of death in the family. And uh, this is before his origin has been uh, retooled, right? I think right around the same time. Uh, let's let's double check that. Batman Volume One, Number Four Hundred Eight. The first part of that story 
is June of 87. This story is May of 87. So, <laughs> right on top of it. Yeah, that's because Barr wrote the, you know, Dick Grayson clone, Jason Todd. And, and also, I mean, Barr, as we've seen, Barr's Batman is a little askew of continuity, you know, using thugs as human shields and things. So I was kind of like, ah, it could have happened right around then. And he just kind of ignored that. But, but no, no. The next month, Jason Todd becomes a young punk. And at that point, we're into, you know, year two. So we're well before Jason's met Bruce by that point. And then we, whenever after year two, Jason's an asshole. Good to know. And then he dies. Spoiler alert. <laughs> for, for a story that I'm sure very few of you are familiar with the death in the family. It's, uh, it's an obscure thing. So, yeah, uh, I don't know if we've got anything else on this one. Uh, that means it's time to put Detective Comics number 574 on the big board. This is my favorite of the night. I can understand Untold Legend going above it, depending on some arguments. But again, I like a, I like the Leslie Tompkins nature of this. I like the Leslie Tompkins of this. And I like the real philosophical debate, even though it doesn't get too deeply into it. But when you only have 22 pages, there's only so much you can do. But I like that in this story that we don't get in Untold Legend. Untold Legend, the, the psychology there is much more surface and the story is much more, let's tell this big wacky story and let's not really focus on anything more complicated than Batman being angry and sad. So if you like this as a serious take and better than Untold Legend of the Batman, I think we have to walk up beyond 36 at Where Were You the Night Batman Was Killed? Because that's just wacky as all hell. Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, it might go right above that. Because above that is another, is Blood Secrets, the Detective Comics annual. That would put whole three spots in between it and the other two stories by the exact same creative team. Yeah, I could do this at 36. Yeah, I think, because again, I think Blood Secrets is a much more, there is, there's more emotion to even to that than there is to this. Batman will come to your small ass town every year just to fuck with you. Yeah, so, so don't get, you know, don't get off on a technicality because Batman will hunt you down. And that's it for this week. Next week, it's three stories featuring the feline fatale herself, Catwoman. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, conduit of outdated joke names, Joshua God, Wheel. that's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, it is. Joshua Wheel, Abigail Hartbaum, <mwah> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, and Kyle Still for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and comicsxf.com and you can support the podcast on patreon where you can get shout outs bonus content pick a story and even come on the show if you want to hear more of my ramblings mostly about the three c's comics cinema and cats you can follow me on twitter at mattlast1013 and i'm at will nevin and i'm out of here good night huntsville and be sure to visit comicsxf at comicsxf.com or at comicsxf on twitter for our weekly friday bat chat roundup of new bat books for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, 
as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.